Hello and welcome to this podcast episode about applied philosophy for health professions education, a journey towards mutual understanding. This is a book edited by Dr. Megan Brown, Professor Gabriel Finn and myself. In this episode, you will hear presentations from authors of some of the chapters in our book. I am Mario Veen, and in other episodes of this podcast channel, I interview experts about their interpretation of Plato's allegory of the cave. But I'm using this channel now for an episode about something a little different. So if you're a regular listener, feel free to skip to another episode or listen along if you want to hear something about how we can use philosophy in health professions education. There will be a new episode coming out soon. The chapters in Applied Philosophy for Health Professions Education present different ways in which philosophy can be applied in our field. For instance, philosophy of education and philosophy of science, but also climate change ethics and philosophy of time. As a whole, the book aims to make philosophy accessible for educators, researchers and other educational professionals. Each chapter ends with a list of practice points to show how the philosophical perspectives can be used concretely. On September 13, 2022, there will be a book presentation in which you get to ask questions to the authors that are presenting in this episode. It's free and, of course, depending on when you listen to this, you're welcome to sign up. The link is in the show notes. And if you want to skip ahead to a particular presentation, I listed the times for each presentation there as well. So before we start with the presentations, let me just quickly introduce the editors. Megan Brown is a doctor turned academic and she's currently working as a senior lecturer in medical education at the University of Buckingham and a teaching fellow in medical education research at Imperial College London. Megan recently defended her PhD in medical education at Hull York Medical School. Gabrielle Finn is Professor of Medical Education and Vice Dean for Teaching, Learning and Students within the Faculty of Biology, Medicine and Health at the University of Manchester. She was the Founding Director of the Health Professions Education Unit at the Hull York Medical School. So I'm Mario Veen and I'm an Assistant Professor in Educational Research at the General Practitioners Department of the Erasmus University Medical Center in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. Our first presentation is for chapter two, which is called Philosophy of Education Towards a Practical Philosophy of Educational Practice by Wouter Pols and Joop Berding. Dear listeners, theory as a map, that's the theme of this audio clip. The clip is about the second chapter of the book. This chapter discusses philosophy of education as a practical philosophy of educational practice. Indeed, we understand philosophy of education as a practical philosophy with which educators can orientate themselves on educational practice, a practical philosophy as an orientation aid, so to speak, or in other words, as a map. This practical philosophy is called pedagogy in many countries, including our own country, the Netherlands. We will discuss all this in this clip. But first let us introduce ourselves. My name is Wouter Pols. I was trained as a teacher. After having worked as a teacher in several years, I studied educational studies and obtained my PhD in educational philosophy 
at the Free University of Amsterdam. I worked for a long time as a teacher, educator in the Rotterdam University of Applied Science. I also worked there as a researcher. The research mainly focused on processes that take place in educational practice. And my name is Joop Berding. I was also trained as a teacher and worked in primary schools for many years. After that, I worked as a civil servant for education and youth policy on local and national levels and as an educational consultant. I also did my PhD at the Free University of Amsterdam. And Wouter and I worked as colleagues in Rotterdam, both as teachers and researchers. We're both retired now, but still intensely connected to the philosophy and practice of education. Joop, you just introduced practical philosophy as an orientation aid for educators. Let's talk about some origins of this type of philosophy. Yes, uh, we discussed these in the chapter of the book. We show that within philosophy, already since Plato and Aristotle, pedagogical themes arise. In the 18th century, a number of philosophers deliberately focused on pedagogical themes, such as Rousseau with his Emile and Kant in his lectures on education. These ideas were put into practice by various people at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, remarkably enough, especially in German-speaking countries. In our chapter, we mentioned Pestalozzi and Herbart. Could you tell a little bit more about them? Yes, Pestalozzi was a Swiss patriot who, inspired by Rousseau, wrote about education and founded several schools. Herbert was a German philosophy professor who became an educationalist and trained teachers. At the end of the 19th century, a new educational renewal movement emerged where again all kinds of philosophical ideas were deliberately put into practice. For example, those of the North American philosopher Dewey. In this way, an educational theory of and for the educational practice were created. An educational orientation aid. Herbert understood this theory as a map with which you can orientate yourself in practice. Practice also requires practical wisdom. Herbert called that tact. Tact can only be achieved by doing and reflecting on what one does in practice. Theory helps with that in preparation for practice and reflection on practice. This theory was called pedagogy. It's important to point out that in the 19th century there were also other trends. Don't forget, the social sciences were emerging. Think of psychology, sociology and economics. These sciences soon began to focus on education. While people like Pestalozzi and Herbart thought and worked from the inside of education, the social sciences investigate education from the perspective of the discipline, from the outside. In doing so, they focus on the processes that take place there, and especially their effects, for example on learning processes or education as an economic factor. They try to explain and predict and optimize learning outcomes or education's contribution to national productivity. Educational philosophy, however, focuses on the meaning of what is going on within education and the goals that are pursued. Okay, so we have educational philosophy and pedagogy. The question then is, 
What is the difference between them? The answer is the starting point, or rather the intellectual home from which one departs. The home of pedagogy is educational practice. It's therefore not surprising that current pedagogy presents itself as a branch of the humanities and uses philosophical methods such as phenomenology and hermeneutics. It's precisely the lived experience and the meaning that educators give to them that form the basis of pedagogy as a theory of and for practice. You could call pedagogy as a situated philosophy, a practical philosophy that finds a starting point in practice and that has the aim not only to orient the educator on practice, but also to think it through. And in that thinking through, other theories can very well be used, including those from the social sciences. The French educationalist Murray speaks of pedagogy as a doctrine that lies between philosophy, science and practice. Herbert called that doctrine a map. All right. In conclusion, Wouter, do you think that the idea of theory as a map is relevant to educators in the field of health professions education? Certainly, they are educators as well. But I think that the idea of a map as an orientation aid for practice is relevant for all health professions. They too operate, just like educators, in complex situations that require orientation aids, aids or, in other words, maps to orientate themselves, to determine their direction, to find their way to help to make divisions, decisions. That's Thank you for your attention. Thank you. Hi there, we are Simon and Maria, authors of the book chapter Subjectification in Health Professions Education, Why We Should Look Beyond the Idea of Professional Identity Formation. And imagine you're at the birthday party and you take a seat beside someone you don't know yet. Here comes the famous birthday question. Who are you? You feel a tiny bit of pressure, an urge to perform. Who are you? It's quite an intriguing question. Lots of answers are possible. I mean, the last time I got this question, I would refer myself to being a teacher as my main identity. How would you answer, Maria? I would probably say that I'm an educational scientist, although I work at a communication department. Um, but there is also lots of different, more personal answers that you could give to this kind of question. Usually I would start with a professional uh, answer. I guess most people will. Yeah, I think so. So if we compare this who are you question um, to a slightly different question. So how are you? How are you is probably as common a question as an intriguing question again. Because what does it mean? One would say, well, uh, this is a question to inquire about your well-being. But suppose I'm asking, asking this question to you right now. How are you? How would you respond as a listener? You would probably respond to it by giving an evaluation of your state and probably by returning the question to me, the asker. Now then, have you really shared how you are? How you are today? How you are today in this specific situation? Listening to this podcast in a particular environment? What about your being have you shared so far? 
Likely not much. This last question, how are you, probes at your existence in the world. How do you do in this world? How do you relate to it? As you may have noted, we rarely treat this question as an invitation to show how you are in the world. In contrast, the first question, who are you, doesn't probe at your existence in the world, but at your identity. All right. So let's now move from the birthday question to uh, the two central concepts in our chapter, which are identity and subjectification. In our chapter, we treat three differences between these two notions, between professional identity formation at one side and subjectification at the other side. The three differences we analyze are the approach to the matter of existence, the relation to socialization, and the relation to the self. I would state at first that performing a certain identity will always reduce your personal being to a more simple version of who you are. And in fact, it's not a real deal. I mean, how I'm presenting myself towards someone at the birthday party is a really inauthentic situation often. It really does not challenge me to state how I exist in the world, as you have stated. So in the sense that asking someone for for his or her identity may be a different question than asking how someone is doing. And I guess this is why we were motivated also to write this chapter, that when thinking about medical education and professional identity formation in this context, we somehow felt that only approaching education via professional identity formation is a reduction of what human existence and education might possibly has to offer. Why do we need this other concept of being a subject? It's the difference between a psychological approach and a philosophical approach. That's the first. So this subject, this notion of subjectification, probes the fact that we exist in the world and this existence it means that we are subjected somehow or thrown into the world as Heidegger stated and that being a subject also means being able to take initiative so this double meaning of existing and being subjected to our own existence and existing as a subject taking initiative is really different than when approaching me or my formation from the aspect of identity. You can think of identity formation as growing into a profession. So you are sort of trying to become part of a profession and in that sense restricted to who you are becoming, so to say. Whereas um, uh, subjectification is much more about who, uh, what do you want to do with your, your identity in this specific situation. So it's more about the uniqueness instead of growing into a predefined or preset Uh, uh, profession for example yeah so the second thing we point at in our chapter is that identity is a concept which is mostly used as a socialization form Mm -hmm. while we are more interested in something else in a different realm which is the realm of freedom in the sense that we are socialized into one 
but we can also critique the profession we are socialized into. And this is, of course, an interesting question for many medical professionals. Uh, so what's the profession you are part of, but also how can you um, um, be in conversation sort of with this uh, profession and have the freedom or um, um, take the freedom within the profession or in relation to the profession? And I guess this also links to the third point, which goes uh, which concerns the matter of perspectives. Um, when thinking of ourselves in terms of identity, we somehow objectify ourselves. We see ourselves in the third person. Well, existing as a subject makes that we are more interested in the irreplaceable situation in which it matters that I am myself. So, and, and what does it mean to see yourself from a first-person perspective, like in, in real life? So that means that, as is, for example, when I'm a teacher or a doctor and I'm confronted with a specific situation in a specific time and a specific place, that it really matters that it is me that is there at that moment, at that time, at that place, instead of someone else with the same competencies or the same characteristics or the same knowledge so that my being is at stake somehow you're called for yeah i guess that we covered now the main points of our chapter yeah so uh feel free of course to ask us anything you would like to discuss with us and um hope to see you the, the 13th of september so see you then Hello, my name is Megan Brown and together with Mario Veen, I wrote chapter four, The Serious Healer, Developing an Ethic of Ambiguity Within Health Professions Education. We chose to focus on ambiguity as it's an increasingly popular topic of discussion within the field, but it has a much longer tradition within philosophy. It means doubtful or double meaning, uncertainty. And health professions educators are recognizing that it is inherent to healthcare practice, but it's very much explored as something we need to tolerate, how to handle ambiguity. It's framed as something that is best avoided. Tolerating something is about dealing with something unpleasant, bad or difficult. Ambiguity is therefore seen negatively through using this language. Another way of looking at ambiguity, of reconceptualizing it, is as a condition of our existence. If ambiguity is more than just an absence of certainty, if it is part of the fabric of life, we need to explore different ways of thinking about ambiguity, of educating about ambiguity in the field. Simone de Beauvoir wrote about ambiguity as a condition of existence, rather than an addition to it. In the chapter we discuss her book The Ethics of Ambiguity, which we highly recommend you read because it's written in a really accessible and engaging way and it really has consequences for how we think about professional identity formation. For the Beauvoir, human existence is inherently ambiguous because I am both a subject that is free to decide and act in the world, but also an object at the mercy of other forces. Just think of an operation. The surgeon is in control, can make choices, is the subject, but the patient is an object lying on the table. We think that the Beauvoir is highly relevant for health professions education because she outlines what it takes to become a mature human being. And this has to do with the extent to which I embrace ambiguity rather than trying to avoid it. 
So the first step in this process that some of us may never complete is what she calls being serious. Most people are serious, which means that they see values as things. Like for a child, bedtime is a thing rather than something that their parents decide. Or for a first year medical student, the attending appears as an all-knowing physician and everything they learn is set in stone. As they continue on their path of professional identity formation and subjectification, they start to embrace the ambiguity of the profession. When approaching life as a serious healer fails, individuals might become nihilistic healers. As serious healers, healthcare professionals may realise that they can't meet the demands of their profession, their patients, their colleagues, their students with such a fixed identity. They might then feel unable to be anything, becoming a nihilistic healer who actively chooses to be nothing. Nihilism is about deciding to give up values, about thinking that existence is meaningless. They run from the freedom. Um, they choose nothingness. Nihilistic healers might refuse to make decisions or to take a stand. They might appear disillusioned. Individuals might also become adventurous healers, either after a period of nihilism or evolving from a serious healer. Adventurous healers live their lives in pursuit of pleasure and glory. Where nihilists deny their existence, adventurous healers acknowledge their desires. They enjoy the pursuit of them. They're not attached to the end goal of their pursuits. They enjoy action for action's sake. They don't aim towards freedom intentionally. They might treat people as objects along the way rather than as free, subjective human beings. In time, the adventurous healers' motivations may change and they may attempt to make themselves complete through the pursuits of projects rather than through more self-serving pursuits. With this change, they become the passionate healer. The passionate healer is the closest of living towards accepting and upholding freedom. But similarly to the adventurous healer, the passionate healer treats other people as objects in the pursuit of their own freedom. So the passionate healer is noble. What's wrong with that? For them, their values are still things. And as a result, they may treat patients and colleagues as objects in the pursuit of these passions. No matter how noble, their passions may blind them to what is actually going on. So the highest we can achieve, according to De Beauvoir, is the genuinely free person. The genuinely free healer is what we should all aspire to. Without realizing our personal freedom while upholding the freedom of others, it's impossible to have a moral existence. This means actively promoting the freedom of patients and valuing their thoughts, opinions and experience. It also involves advocacy, because the freedom of others is central to identity as an ethical healthcare professional, and this may require social and political action. We can draw upon de Beauvoir's recommendations to offer insight as to how we can move towards facilitating a pedagogy of ambiguity within health professions education. The serious man, the serious healer, is likely the most widespread attitude towards ambiguity within health professions education. As de Beauvoir puts it, every man was first a child and children are serious when it comes to ambiguity. We have five practice points for working towards a pedagogy of ambiguity. First, start with yourself. It's important that we each examine our own relationship with ambiguity, our own discomfort, our own alignment with the attitudes of bad faith that de Beauvoir outlines. And we can then more readily identify similar attitudes amongst our students, recognize where they are, support them to move towards promoting the freedom of others. 
Second is acknowledging ambiguity. This is about recognizing ambiguity as fundamental to our existence, making space for it as a fact of medicine. Ambiguity is not something we experience. It's a condition of our being within medicine, within health professions education. Third, with our students, we need to start early. Don't protect or shield them from ambiguity. We shape learners to be serious when we do that. Expose students to the practice of ambiguity. Engage them in discussion about it early in their training. Fourth is connecting ambiguity and ethical action. It's about promoting the freedom of others, including patients. And if this is positioned as central to ethical practice within medicine, it's likely to have higher buy-in from various stakeholders. And that brings us to our final practice point, focusing action on the needs and freedom of patients, which can be achieved through fostering relationships with patients, encouraging and facilitating advocacy, and ensuring that freedom for patients is prized above abstract professional values that we give a lot of weight to, like professionalism. Hello, everybody listening. Uh, you're listening to the authors of chapter five of this amazing book. And we are Anna in Amsterdam, Bill in the UK and Grace in the US. So we are in three different time zones to tell you about our chapter. Uh, we didn't know each other before writing this chapter, but we've uh, really enjoyed this collaboration. And uh, we actually started with some issues that came up in Bill's research about empathy. Can you tell us a bit more about that, Bill? Yes. Um, thanks, Anne. This really fascinated me because I think we all know empathy is important to us as clinicians, as people, um, because it's all about collaborating and connecting with others. And when I researched how we do it in medical education and health professions education and the way that we teach it and the way that students ultimately come to learn it, I came to realize that what many students are doing, um, which they've picked up from their seniors, is they are shortcutting to making these empathic statements, saying things like, I'm sorry to hear that, um, but not really doing authentic empathy, not doing the listening that's really needed for authentic empathy. And these statements became substitutes for empathy rather than you know really empathic ways of communicating with others and I, I saw that as a problem yes and you describe it so beautifully in one of your articles as uh, students say it's empathic dissonance so they have to say something because they have to pass their test but they're not really feeling it on the inside well, and that was just exactly what me and Mario Vein have described in our reflective zombie piece, where students have to reflect. Reflecting, like empathy, is such a complex activity, a complex term, uh, a concept that is very old and very, uh, well, not simple. <laughs> and in medical education, empathy and reflection uh, seem to be defined very strictly, made measurable so we can assess it and give people a score. And then what happens is that students just tick the boxes off that checklist. And like the empathic dissonance you described, Bill, students don't actually feel comfortable with it and teachers don't like it either. So when we wrote the reflective zombie, I thought there's something going on here. We're changing something that is complex and human and um, not just cognitive, but also emotional to a checklist. And in our chapter, we call this process skillification. 
So rather than a really a multifaceted human experience, it, it becomes a skill that you can teach and learn and test and observe. Uh, and this problem uh, is what we call skillification, like I just said. And that's a discussion where I found grace. Well, and I'll say it's probably where I found you, Anna, because you had written some really beautiful work on kind of the dilemmas of reflection and of simulation and learning. And I, I saw the same things in some of my work and it felt like teaching communication was just such an empty activity versus something that was rooted in our shared humanity and the world that we create together just through our communication. So um, as we were talking, I shared with you someone who I had read as a communication ethicist named Michael Hyde and his work on acknowledgement. And he really dove into philosophy and brought me with him in that sense, as far as it is our own ability to acknowledge our humanity and the limited time that is life that pre- that creates so much beauty in that act, right? That it is our shared humanity and our connection and that it's oftentimes hard. And perhaps that's why sometimes we get into the checkbox mentality is we're just trying to move on and get things done. But I think if we forget who we are to each other and what it means to be human, then empathy falls flat. So I like, I like the word that we picked with antidote, that it was the, the antidote to the skillification of empathy is bringing in that sort of deeper philosophy. Yeah. So in our chapter, this is kind of how it all comes together. And we want to propose considering acknowledgement when doing any teaching that has to do with the affective side, uh, affect and emotion and humanity. Uh, and we have nothing against skills teaching, but skills teaching alone uh, doesn't have to do with true contact. And so a term like acknowledgement can really help. In the chapter, we don't give any clear-cut answers, but we do give some directions or suggestions to um, incorporate this way of thinking in our medical uh, health professions education. And uh, we have some wonderful intercontinental friends at the end of writing this chapter. Medicine as a social science, as the science of human beings, has the obligation to point out problems and to attempt their theoretical solutions. This quote sits at the start of our chapter and we believe briefly represents why understanding social justice, its philosophies, and its role in health professions education is essential to the purpose of health professions themselves. In chapter 9, the philosophy of social justice, lessons for achieving progress in health professions education through meaningful inclusion, we commence with a brief description and definitions of social justice to engage our readers in shared understanding. We also try and recognize the many forms and ways in which social justice can be engaged. There are many moral imperatives that the health professions can and should consider to be within the purview of our work. We wish we could speak to all of them, if such a thing were even possible. But ultimately, our chapter decides to tackle and introduce examples of social justice challenges via case studies and subsequent philosophies that can help one understand and engage in the problems presented. We aim to draw from real examples and stories of the day-to-day opportunities to engage in social justice to make this work accessible. You will read about the busy clinician who is appalled at the racial disparities and differences in loss of life from COVID-19 by those in Black and other minoritized ethnic communities, about the medical educator grappling with titling microaggressions and navigating discussions on pronoun use and necessity, 
about the teacher struggling to advocate for their students in discussions on academic standards when it comes to making education more representative and inclusive for underserved communities. In providing each of these perspectives, we hope to highlight the ways in which we each and every one of us encounters injustices regularly and provide insights on how to engage these injustices. Using philosophies such as Gaita's common humanity, De Beauvoir's androcentrism, and Sen's capability approach as lenses to understand social injustices better allows for individuals to be better equipped to challenge them. We encourage readers of our chapter to consider these cases and philosophies as a reflective exercise. How would you act in each of these situations? How can these philosophies be applied in your work to tackle other injustices you may encounter? How can we leverage philosophy generally to find more solutions to the problems in health professions education work? To leave readers with another arguably more famous quote, the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We don't promise that reading our one chapter or understanding a bit more about one philosophy will help to dramatically ease the injustices of our professions and societies, but we hope that it can help each of us to continue to bend and shape a more fair future, one person and problem at a time. Welcome to our podcast around the future of healthcare is feminist, philosophical feminism in health professions education. I'm Gabrielle Finn, Professor of Medical Education and Vice Dean for Teaching and Learning at the University of Manchester. I am Lena Vongren. I work at the University of Edinburgh and also at Harriet Watt University on uh, medicine and literature and um, uh, social justice as well. I mean, we wrote this chapter together and I think it was a really good uh, kind of working together of our different expertises you are you because you you know you work with medical and health profession students uh, and education whereas i teach literature and medicine students as well as kind of uh gender politics uh both as an activist and an academic but i think our, our our two kind of academic and life experiences came together nicely in the chapter oh uh, yeah absolutely i mean you know i've always been interested in feminist theory and have done a little bit of work on sort of a call to arms as to why we should consider it more within um, medical curricula, but being able to work with you and do that deep dive into the theory and really apply it to my subject area was so advantageous. And I hope that our readers um, find, you know, find the same. I think, you know, we talked a lot in the chapter, didn't we, about gender inequality and philosophical feminism, but really tried to give a practical application so why yeah. should somebody working with healthcare students day to day care about this? And I mean, with feminism, historically and in the present time, and kind of gender equality, it's both theoretical, but also it has to be practical. It's something that we do uh, in our everyday lives. So I mean, you you can't you can't imagine society without a concept of gender. And sadly, I mean, with it comes. Uh, well, before we have changed society completely <laughs> with it, there is also gender bias uh, and as well as kind of racist uh, and kind of heteronormative bias as well that comes with it. So for me, feminism is always, it, it's not just theoretical, it's not just philosophical, it's always connected to everyday life. Absolutely. I think 
in my field, I see a lot of people talking about the importance of intersectionality without really realizing that feminist roots of, of the term, mm. um, which is which is really interesting. And I know that you and I have talked about perhaps the application of feminist theory or just discussing it were perhaps moving faster than the education system. Mm. Um, we, you know, it was really useful sharing anecdotes with you about, you know, I've had medical students who, for example, have been really embarrassed not understanding what cis means um, mm. and how, you know, perhaps the lexicon of lots of our students hasn't evolved or kept pace with lots of the issues that they might be facing um, mm. when they're working as clinicians. Mm. And that's, I mean, I think that's how it usually goes, that kind of act, the activist movements, because, you know, with disability activism, uh, LGBT activism, you know, feminist activism, anti-racist activism, are way ahead of kind of, you know, the education system, specifically higher education, before everything kind of, I, I don't want to say, I don't want to say trickles down, but before kind of we we, we learn and move that knowledge into academia and into um, kind of, well, the wider education system, because that's how it is. I, I know a lot of people, you know, we learn from our students, right? And I mean, sometimes like I'm an activist and a teacher, right? But just as you're saying, I think we, sometimes the teachers are far behind the students on this issue. Absolutely. And I think, you know, as if you read our chapter, you'll see we have the practice points. And in that last point, number five, is around, you know, addressing equality, diversity, inclusion, being an activist, it's a longitudinal process. Mm. And, you know, we're trying to develop the future policymakers, sowing those seeds, allowing people the time to understand, to develop their appreciation of, of some of these quite challenging um, mm. complex issues that, you know, requires quite a lot of introspection. Um, so it's interesting to hear you say that mm. as well. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of our practice points as well is specifically talking about embracing the arts and humanities as a way of exploring EDI issues, which I think is really good. And, and because when we, um, when we talk about kind of understanding, empathy, uh, not just kind of from a kind of, you know, health professional patient perspective, but also and in terms of understanding other people's experiences of identity and health and illness, storytelling and humanities uh, writing is really important because a way of kind of entering into someone else's world. I hope everyone enjoys the chapter. Yeah, absolutely. I think what we hope we've achieved is the start of a conversation. Um, and that mm. people will engage with feminist theory and really start to think about how this might manifest within their curriculum um, and start to make those small changes that will build up to that huge cultural shift that we require. Mm. Thanks, Lena. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you.
In Chapter 12, What Does It Mean to Be Ontology and Responsibility in Health Professions Education, we make the argument that HPE has traditionally drawn from the practices and perspectives of biomedical science and cognitive psychology. As such, we have privileged ontologies where there's an independent reality that exists out there, and that scientists just need to use methodologies to uncover nature's universal laws. What we've not given much thought to is what does it mean to be what does it mean to exist? As our field continues to become more racially and ethnically diverse, we're going to need to expand its, its ways of doing ontology and consider what it means to be in HPE. In this chapter, we propose that educators ask ontological questions that allow for other conceptualizations of being, specifically by considering ideas around responsibility. We're proposing that medical educators start to think about being as a nothingness or a not yet within subjects to allow for space as they become someone or something. The branch of philosophy that concerns itself with being is called ontology. And the word ontology is used in different ways in medical education. But here we outline ontology as both the most fundamental and most abstract branch of philosophy. But paradoxically, it's also about the most concrete and mundane stuff we encounter every day. And there are at least two reasons why doing ontology is so challenging. The first is because it contrasts with what we are usually doing, which is categorizing and putting things into boxes. In this chapter, we compare doing ontology to getting to know someone. First, you may think of a new person you meet in terms of the categories that fit them. Male, in their 30s, a physician born in this place, but emigrated to another place, etc. But as this person becomes a friend, these categories start to matter less. You no longer need these labels, because you get a sense of who they are, their being. The second reason why ontology is so challenging is because it involves me, the one who is doing ontology. And why is it important for health professions education to engage with ontology? Well, because we all have a philosophical bias. We all have a way of relating to beings that colors everything else that we do. And we are responsible for this way of being. As researchers, we each believe that responsibility should be included in the ontological thinking embraced by HPE. Each of us as researchers use these ideas in our own work, which you can read about in other places. In particular, my research has been around ideas of ontology in racially and ethnically diverse physicians. The idea of taking responsibility came from my childhood experiences growing up in Hawaii in the 1970s and 80s when there was a cultural renaissance within the islands. At this time, Native Hawaiians were emerging with a sense of self-determination after more than a century of colonization. And during this time, there was quite a push for bringing the ideas of kuleana into the educational system. This is a concept which emphasizes the existence of a reciprocal relationship between those who are responsible and the thing which they are responsible for. Unlike HPE, which tends to think of students as autonomous beings separate from their larger contexts, the idea that individuals have responsibility to themselves and others places humans in a larger ecosystem that changes the way people relate to each other, 
We would like to propose this view for HPE as a way to bring about a new ontological perspective from the traditional biomedical approach that's typically used. And to do this, we discussed the ontological approaches of Martin Heidegger, Bruno Latour and Karen Barat. These philosophers differ on many key issues, but they have in common that they reject ontological dualism. Ontological dualism is most associated with René Descartes, and it supposes a distinction between mind and world, between the physical and the psychological, between me and the rest of the world. Martin Heidegger put ontology on the philosophical map again by contrasting the view of an I, an isolated subject that looks out onto the world beyond our heads, with being in the world, a human being that is always already embedded, embodied and positioned in a world. For Heidegger, this means that we are responsible for our being. Then we discuss Bruno Latour. Latour challenges many distinctions that we often make, such as the distinction between science and culture, but also the distinction between people and technology. This means that any material way in which we organize health professions education, such as the classrooms that we teach our students in, shape the relationships between teachers and students, students and assessments, and so on. Finally, Karen Barat shows that the world is made up of entanglements. For Barat, responsibility means our ability to respond to a world that is responding to us. The world does not consist essentially of individual entities who then enter in a relationship to each other, but it fundamentally consists of relationships or what she calls interactions. And these are the basis on which we can think of entities at all. As we consider future directions for expanding ontology in medical education, the implications of doing ontology in this way is significant for HPE. Right now, the influence of individualism within our field is very clear. HPE focuses on knowledge and skills as discrete and measurable components and superficial features of what it means to be a doctor. This has preoccupied much of our scholarship and curricular design, and we need to shift to a focus of ontological responsibility. HP is going to require a concerted effort to think about how curriculum might engage the whole person in this shift, integrating what the students know, how they act, and who they are. Thinking about identity in this way has consequences because identity is not a destination. It is a process in constant flux, one that involves integration of knowing, acting, and being in the form of professional ways that, in, that unfold over time. And of course, making changes in the curriculum is going to be highly political. How much time and space are allocated for certain subdisciplines is a political question, as is who accepted into and graduates from our professional schools. But you can do this work in the training settings that you're in. We have five practice points for you to consider. One, ask ontological questions by starting with yourself and where you are. Two, ask yourself what the ethical and material consequences are of categorizing trainees and other aspects of your work in a certain way. Three, notice the entanglement of matter and social relations and the borders between different ontological categories. Four, decentralize the human as individual in scholarship and focus on the relationship between beings. 
And five, find ways to create space for trainees and physicians to bring their whole selves to the profession. We look forward to talking with you more. Hi, everyone. My name is Brian Pilkington, and I am the author uh, of chapters 15 and 23 of Megan, Mario, and Gabrielle's excellent uh, <laughs> collected work, Applied Philosophy for Health Professions Education. So what I'll do in my next five minutes is just share a little bit about each uh, chapter, and I'm really looking forward to the the conference conversation. So uh, chapter 15 is titled Ethics Education in the Health Professions. And what I tried to do in this chapter was offer some descriptions of the three, uh, there's some argument there, but of a three uh, big ethical theories uh, that could inform health professions practice and the education of health profession students. In so doing, I tried to satisfy uh, the aim of responding to the complexity of some philosophical material. That's a critique I hear a lot. Philosophy is too complicated for students. Um, and also to respond to another concern, which is the lack of familiarity of some health profession students with philosophical approaches, right? So that pedagogical concern that students don't come in with the relevant background to make these kinds of conversations worthwhile. Part of the move here is to avoid some of the more complicated features of these theories and really focus on what would be beneficial to health profession students. So I highlighted connections between these theories and some common principles, such as the connection between a rule-based ethic, broadly construed, and autonomy. Uh, also between theories in large fields like public health ethics, which are becoming increasingly of interest to health profession students, and between theories and teaching through the discussion of virtue ethics, uh, in particular focusing the idea of, uh, on the idea of mentorship. So health profession students and teachers of health professions students, I think, need not shy away from the theories that should and do inform their professional codes of ethics, right? So we have people all the time appealing to their professional codes of ethics. Well, what undergirds that? We don't need to shy away. We don't need to simplify things. Health profession students are, um, at least in my experience, interested, energetic, and open to these kinds of um, conversations as long as they're not too complex too fast. With the structure of human action as a guide, that's how I frame the chapter, and by reflecting on the three or a three a set of three big ethical theories connected to different components of human action. Uh, I think ethics education for health profession students can be robust, meet the needs of teachers and students, and be an interesting and impactful part of the student's training. So the arguments for all of this are in the chapter. Uh, again, this is Brian Pilkington, and that's Chapter 15, uh, Ethics Education in the Health Professions. And now with the time I have left, um, I'm going to talk a little bit about Chapter 23. Uh, I was the author of 23 as well, uh, and that chapter is titled Teaching Dignity in the Health Professions. In this chapter, I offer a new approach to ethics education in the health professions. Uh, and for some reasons, uh, that's what made it really exciting. So I suggest framing ethics content in terms of the notion of dignity, which floats around bioethics conversations and has for a bit, but hasn't really been applied to health professions education. And when I think about dignity in particular, I think that it urges health professionals to avoid three violations. Uh, Treatment that is humiliating, that's the first. Treatment which denies opportunities uh, to patients and others, that's the second. And treatment which kills. I think dignity's applicability is broad enough, especially with its focus on human beings, to be relied upon in the ethics education of a variety of health professions. 
but also specific enough with these three prohibitions I just mentioned to supply useful content for the practice of individual health professions, right? So it's useful for everybody, but also specifically for some professions. The details of this application must be put into practice by health professionals themselves. Right? So my background's in philosophy. I don't have a clinical degree. And so I'm hoping to offer resources that can really be used by health professions, uh, members, and educators. Uh, and I think that they will do this, hopefully, as they realize dignity in their daily work. An important and ancillary benefit of taking, uh, taking up this new approach in health ethics education is its suggestion of non-standard cases. So that's like the big practical move. Uh, non-standard cases and spaces for reflection. This chapter focused, uh, this, again, this is chapter 23, focused on situations of incarceration to elucidate three lessons for health professionals, uh, which centered on practices that retain dignity, number one, avoid undignified treatment, number two, and call for recognition, number three. Uh, one of the really interesting features of this chapter was that it connects to considerations of pedagogy. So the kinds of uh, ethical reflection involving dignity that health profession students can apply to clients and patients and sort of the structures around them, I think also can be used by health professions, teachers, uh, and educators to actually construct um, more sort of dignity supportive uh, pedagogies. This was especially interesting for me and also I think a nice move because in other aspects of my work, I concerned about the bifurcation of individuals having a work sort of focus and then a life focus. Um, and if they're very far apart, I think that can be challenging um, psychologically and for some other reasons. So this chapter I'm especially happy with because uh, I think it sort of addressed that issue as well. Thank you. This is Dr. Christina Ritchie. I'm a lecturer at the Delft University of Technology in the Netherlands, and I contributed the chapter on climate change and healthcare education. Today, I'm going to base my talk about three different areas. One is going to be how I got interested in the topic. Two is going to be why the topic is important. And three is going to be what instructors can do now. So first, I got interested in climate change education while I was working as an assistant professor at the Brody School of Medicine at East Carolina University in North Carolina. And not only were the medical students very interested in climate change and sustainability, they were also feeling distressed about the amount of waste that they would see in their rotations, in their clinical rotations. Moreover, I had studied philosophy and ethics in undergrad and grad school. So I had long been interested in sustainability and ecology. And this had been something that I had taught in small liberal arts colleges and also in my ethics courses at seminaries, both in the United States and internationally. I did decide to put some own sustainable healthcare curriculum in my own courses at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences, where I was an adjunct instructor for three years before going to the Brody School of Medicine. The students at the Brody School of Medicine were really engaged in the topic of climate change education. And prior to that, I had placed curriculum in other places. So as I finished my PhD and started being involved in the Environmental Bioethics Affinity Group at the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities, I started talking with other instructors about where they were placing climate change and climate change education. And they had it in their public health courses, their theology courses, their global health courses, their ethics courses, their med school courses. And we realized that across the board, 
the students wanted to hear about it and instructors were using it, but we thought that we were working basically in different spheres and that we should codify this somehow, put it together so we didn't have to reinvent the wheel because instructors are busy. And so we decided to kind of get together a list of places that we had put our curriculum and also a list of curriculum resources. So this helped to strengthen us and mobilize us to be in solidarity with the topic in our various programs and networks. And we just saw it blossom in terms of where curriculum was being placed and really the thirst and desire to see that. The second topic I want to address is why it is important to have climate change in med school curriculum and other health sciences curriculum. First, this is a global topic of universal interest as climate change moment in that people are willing to discuss it. COP26 was somewhat of a success, but it's on people's radar in terms of sustainability, and that includes sustainable health care. Everyone is affected by climate change, even if we don't realize it, and climate change health hazards disproportionately affect the poor and vulnerable. So it's also a matter of justice, both social justice and structural justice. People want to discuss it. They want to know about the impact of their health care, and people training for healthcare professions want to know what they can do to be more sustainable, just like they do in other aspects of their life, from their food to their transportation. On that, there is a huge student desire to learn about this, not only because of what they face in the clinic, but also because they think about what it means to be an ethical healthcare practitioner. And it's difficult to be ethical when you're contributing to climate change and when you're causing perhaps more climate change health hazards for your patients. So there is an intense desire for students to discuss this, to find out about it, and to have some tangible metrics of what they can do to reduce their carbon footprint in the medical industry, and also to be green practitioners. The third and final thing I want to discuss is what can instructors do now? First, read the chapter and look at the references. It's a great source of what I've been collecting over the last few years of where you can look at climate change education, what you can do to lobby your administrators, and where you can find the resources that the students want in an easy way. Secondly, you can make climate change a topic as a case study to open a class. Oftentimes, we use the case study method in healthcare sciences and climate change health hazards, something like, under what circumstances is it ethical for healthcare to pollute? Or how should climate change health hazards be addressed as a public health concern? Or what do you think healthcare professionals, hospital administrators, and patients can do to be more sustainable in their healthcare? So make it a case study, get the students discussing it. They'll have amazing ideas. Finally, you can add climate change to discussion questions in the end of a classroom or use the Socratic approach in classrooms to address climate change when this comes up. So ask them, push on it. Whenever we talk about reproductive ethics, talk about population growth. When we talk about cancer treatments, talk about chemotherapy and toxicity. We talk about pharmaceuticals, talk about the immense carbon output of pharmaceuticals. So just start doing it. You don't have to be perfect and there's resources out there to help. So hi, my name is Martina Kelly. I'm a family doctor and this is my co-author. Tinu Ruparel. I'm an associate professor of religious studies. And we have been working together for a number of years exploring health and philosophy and our chapter is chapter 19, philosophy of therapy. So we're gonna walk and talk, join us. So Tinu. <laughs> <laughs> so Tinu, you wanna hold it? Sure.
So tell us, why is philosophy therapy? Well, one of the things that we tried to say in our, um, our chapter that uh, you, I, and, you, me, and uh, Tim Gornan uh, wrote uh, is the idea that philosophy is something that all of us do naturally. And that as a part of the um, sort of arsenal for physicians, um, it can become a form of therapy. Uh, not simply just talking, but really sort of using the opportunity to think uh, differently and ask different kinds of questions, which perhaps open up um, the space for you know, different forms of um, you know, helping patients and, of course, helping ourselves as physicians and uh, thinkers. How do you think it actually fits in with practice as a physician? Um, I think firstly, sometimes it gives my, my head a break. So it's interesting to think about different topics. I also think that there sometimes is a tendency for us to think we know everything. And it's quite humbling to be overwhelmed and read stuff and go, what does that mean again? Um, and also it's been very useful for me in clinic with my patients because although I can get distracted by guidelines, sometimes my patients are in, I'm going to call them existential moments. And I think that philosophy obviously has a whole school of existentialism and can help us think and frame our issues for patients in a productive manner. But what about with your students? Yes, I think it's particularly helpful with students. Um, in that, we mentioned in the chapter the work of Gadamer and the idea of trying to understand each other and have conversations. And I think that calls on us this willingness to understand and also that I don't know everything and that I have to be willing to be changed as well. And that's what philosophy does for us, I think. One of the things we spend a fair bit of time in the chapter thinking about is the whole role of technology in medicine and um, trying to apply some philosophical thinking uh, to understanding what technology actually does. Uh, we used uh, Heidegger particularly in his fundamental um, insight that technology is actually a revelation of a particular way of being. And I wondered where you thought technology helps and hinders um, the, uh, the business of healthcare. Oh, you never ask easy questions to you. <laughs> I think it's easy for us to think about technology as gadgets, and so that can beguile us, as they say. Um, but I think this idea of technology as a creative space um, or something that we... I'm not going to be able to answer this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Tell me, Tinu. Well, so what do you think? I was thinking, you know, one of the things that um, technology seems to do is sort of play an outsized role in um, in healthcare, and as Heidegger was at pains to sort of discuss, when we think about technology purely as a kind of tool, a way to uh, manipulate the world, without realizing how it also changes who we are, then we kind of denature the tool itself, and we allow technology to denature ourselves. And if um, 
You know, technology is overused in uh, healthcare, then it has the potential to change the nature of ourselves and our patients in really deleterious ways. So I think we see a lot of that in healthcare. Um, and of course, there's lots of good that technology allows us to do. It's really, I think, a matter of trying to find the appropriate use of technology and never to forget its kind of transforming power. All right, back in the office. And here's our chapter. Zooming in. Chapter 19, probably back to front now. It's all a mystery. <laughs> so have a look at our chapter. We really look forward to uh, uh, interacting and listening to you guys and uh, chatting about these important ideas. I am Ken Sharp. I'm a professor of political science who teaches ethics and political philosophy, uh, formerly at Swarthmore College, now part-time at Dartmouth College. And we're gonna start by telling you a story that was very important to us when we got together and decided to write this article. It's a story of a, a colleague of ours who we'll call Dr. S, who talks about one of the patients he had in a clinic in um, uh, uh, a major US city. He starts talking about his patient JT, who he says had been beaten most of his life. He was a patient in a homeless shelter, mean, tough. In fact, the first day I saw him looks at my name, Dr. S, which is a Jewish last name, and he says, what's your name? And he rolls up his sleeve and there's this huge swastika tattoo and it's dripping with blood. And JT says, look at this. And I said, what's up with that tattoo, JT? He said, well, I think you know. I just bypassed the remark and went on with the medical exam, said Dr. S. This patient came in many times and his sleeve was rolled up. And after many visits, I noticed that his sleeve was not rolled up. And he sent his children to me. Fast forward 11 years. His last visit, I looked at his arm and it was all inflamed where the tattoo had been. I said, JT, you have dermatitis on your arm and it looks terrible. I asked him, what's up, JT? He bit his lips again. He says, since I met you, doc, I've been trying to rub it off. And Dr. S said to us, I don't know if I did anything for his health, but it was about the most meaningful thing that ever happened in my professional life. It's calling us to be in the moment, to be our best selves in terms of the other. So Peggy, when you heard this story, what were some of the things you noticed in it? Well, for starters, especially in this environment where so many healthcare professionals are burned out, I noticed immediately how Dr. S said that this was perhaps the most meaningful experience of his professional life. Second, Dr. S never mentions the word practical wisdom. He doesn't talk about ethics or philosophy or for that matter, choice making or decision wise decision making. And all the action happens in a minute or two. So Ken, where do you see the practical wisdom, the choice making in this story? This is really a very troubling and important question. I see it everywhere. And the question for us is how do you how do people learn it and how do you teach it, even if they don't 
talk, but I see it in the character, in the virtues, the character traits that he needed, um, really classical ones that Dr. S needed, um, like his um, courage to deal with JT in a fearful moment, the patience he had, his compassion, um, his, um, his care. Um, I see it not only in those virtues, but I see it in the, in the judgment, the practical wisdom he had and the skills that he needed to actually do that. He needed the ability to notice the particularities of JT, of that patient at that particular moment. So he needed to see, to notice, to perceive. He needed the capacity for empathy. He needed the capacity for imagination to play out in his mind the consequences of what would happen given the various things he could say to JT. He had to understand the telos of his practice, why he was seeing JT in the um, uh, first place, uh, what he was aiming at. And he needed the skills to be able to reflect and deliberate very quickly to figure out what to say. And in this case with JT, what not to say and how not to say it. So um, I think that's really super important. And it raises the question for me, how is it that we teach these kinds of things? Or how is it that medical students learn these kinds of things? Because it may be that we don't teach them to them didactically through lectures and um, papers mm -hmm. and graphs. And you're someone who's really given a lot of thought to this. So, uh, and, and I've also given it a try, or I'm giving it a try, let's say, uh, in the Phrenesis Project at, at uh, the medical school, where we actually created a pilot program to see if we could foster these capacities for practical wisdom in students. And in that program, we um, match students with patients longitudinally. And I think if you ask me what was the key thing we did, it was that. But we also taught uh, about um, the both the virtues and the skills uh, that you have mentioned um, around practical wisdom. And let me just um, maybe emphasize this by telling a story um, that I think illustrates how this might be how this might be taught or fostered. Um, a story of a student um, who was matched with a, longitudinally with a patient. She was a student of color. And the patient was an elderly woman with COPD. Um, students regularly did house calls on their patients and the student's initial visits with this particular patient were strained because the student had, I mean, the patient had, um, how can I say this, some biased or bigoted attitudes. So the student came to me and said that she wasn't sure that she could continue with this patient because of the patient's attitudes. And we talked it through. And over the course of the next few weeks, worked it through. Um, how would she approach this patient? How might she work through these issues with the patient? And in fact, to the student's credit, she was able to work this through and establish a very, uh, a very close and important relationship with this patient, which went on for the next three years. And in a year three, the patient um, developed a not unexpected um, worsening of her COPD, ended up in the ICU, um, and the team was having a lot of trouble uh, dealing with the patient in the inpatient uh, setting. And at one point, the patient said, can you please call my student? The student came in and was able to broker 
at a very critical time in this patient's life, the really difficult decisions um, that this patient was facing. And I think that story and the way this student um, actually was able to function over the course of her three and four years of medical school with this patient, she really, this student really exemplified the virtues of courage, of compassion when it was hard, and the skills of seeing the particularities uh, of these patients, uh, this patient's values, um, had a capacity for empathy and had the reflective skills to move through some really difficult situations with this patient and played a very important role in this patient's care. Um, so I think that's maybe you know, a good example of how we might think about teaching these virtues and skills involved in practical wisdom. Thank you, Peggy. We would love to go on, but take a look at what we wrote and we hope you enjoy it. Thanks very much. All right. Um, welcome, everybody. I'm uh, Sven Skapkins, and uh, here I'm joined with Camilo Kocha. We wrote the article uh, about time and reflection. And um, that article uh, kind of came to be through the conversations that the two of us had. And um, that was a wonderful way to write an article in the first place, just to kind of speak to each other about this, this problem about time or not having time and, and how reflection fits into a busy scheduled day. And at some point, um, it got us thinking about personal examples and personal experiences as well. And um, uh, Camilo shared a story with me, which became a pivotal part in our um, article. Um, and this story goes as follows. Camilo? So I was a newly trained medical student, and I... Uh, was asked to see a patient who had a serious urinary tract infection and had a background of cervical cancer, which um, was end-stage disease, and we were unable to treat it. And uh, when I went up to the patient, she, uh, I introduced myself, and she recognized me. I didn't recognize her initially as someone I had already known who was who was dying of cancer, and I had, had no idea. And well, while we were talking about, about that, we, we came to the conclusion that there, there is something about time within this example, just because of how busy the emergency center was. It was packed, it was rushing. We were under pressure to see patients. And yet, even though I saw maybe 50 patients in the, that week, I can only remember the one, the one that, that stood out, the one that I knew and the one that, you know, the patient that I feel changed everything about the way I thought about that week. So what happened here is that um, um, we started interpreting this moment that uh, Camilo experienced as a chirotic moment, which means um, that's, a, that's a term used in ancient Greek philosophy. And basically it, it means it is a situated moment um, where you do something that is exactly correct for that moment or something happens that, that just can't happen anywhere else but in that moment. It's kind of the correct or right moment to say something or to do something. Um, and when you start unpacking this chaotic moment a little bit further, as we do in the article, 
we um, ended up by this wonderful kind of phrase that we found about chirotic moments that says um, it's a kind of special occasion uh, in the course of events when such truths uh, must be brought to bear by an individual. Um, in other words, so this general th truth that, of course, Camilo was sort of carrying with him through um, his his job as a doctor. He, he was a doctor trying to deter death. Um, that was his job to treat patients. And all of a sudden, um, in that experience, that kind of was uh, disrupted. And it started to make him think and rethink this position of being a doctor who just simply deters death. And um, because he knew this person from the past that kind of collided right now with him being a doctor in a sort of formal um, professional uh, environment. And those those things kind of opened up uh, how he was thinking about um, his profession at that at that stage. And basically what we argue in the article is that um, meaning as such is not simply solidified. I am not just a doctor or I'm not just a person who knows another person, but all these things from the past kind of you carry them with you. And sometimes these these sort of roles that you have that lie in the past or that you've learned in the past, they they slip into the present and they kind of merge and and clash into each other in these chirotic moments. And that can potentially create new meaning and therefore also opportunity towards the future. Um, for instance, rethinking his role as um, um, as a doctor trying to deter death. And that is kind of what, at least the core of, of our article uh, that we try to convey. Um, Camilo, do you have any final words? Well, I think what was most interesting for us, and especially starting to research and write about the, you know, the themes that we were looking at, was how deeply the relationship between reflection, reflective learning, ran through the history of philosophy from the ancient Greeks through to the Christians, through the Christian tradition, and even to the Jewish tradition with who we quote Walter Benjamin, there's a deep connection between an experience of time and the nature of reflection, of how reflection happens and how reflection can help us understand these chirotic moments and help us sort of lean into other ways of learning. All right. Um, I think we have way more to say, but uh, for that, you can read the article and uh, I can I can promise you we left so much out of our article in the conversations that we covered, but uh, the gist of it is caught in, in those words. So uh, thank you for uh, watching this video and uh, hopefully uh, speak to you at the conference. My name is Tim LeBon and I'm one of the co-authors of Chapter 22, which is all about stoicism. I'm a CBT psychotherapist and supervisor by profession, and I'm also an author and director of research for an organization called Modern Stoicism, which organizes research into the impact of Stoicism and also runs an international Stoic Week every October. The headline from both our research and my own personal experience is that Stoicism can be a great resource in both our personal and working lives. In our chapter, we end with five practice points. And today I'm going to illustrate the first four of these with examples from my own work as a supervisor of CBT therapists, which I hope is gonna be of relevance, not just if you're a psychotherapist, but to health professionals in general. So 
Practice point one is to differentiate between Stoicism lowercase s, as it's often used in modern language, and Stoicism spelt with an uppercase s, the philosophy which we are talking about in this chapter. Stoicism with a small s is often used to describe a not very helpful passive approach to life, where we button everything up, grin and bear it, the stiff upper lip. And this isn't at all what true Stoicism is really about. As we'll see, real Stoicism is a very active life philosophy. The true Stoic doesn't need to repress negative emotions because they see things in a very different way and so don't experience extreme negative emotions in the first place. Practice point two is to reflect on what is and what is not under our control so-called dichotomy of control. Here's an example. A therapist comes to clinical supervision concerned that a client they have discharged has not made the expected progress. As their supervisor, I might ask them how much control they had over this outcome. In a flash, the supervisee realizes that despite their best efforts, if the client is not ready to change, or if they had severely adverse life events, the best psychotherapist in the world may not have been able to cure them. Although, of course, we're interested in outcomes, the takeaway is to take responsibility only for things that are under our control, which is what we do and how we think about things. In the same way that a gust of wind may blow even an expert archer's arrow off course, so bad fortune can impact even our very best efforts. Practice point three is the stoic therapy of the emotions. The face of Helen of Troy may have launched to thousands of ships. Well, a line in the handbook of Epictetus certainly launched modern cognitive behavioral therapy or CBT. I'm sure you know which line I'm talking about. It is not events that disturb people, it is their judgments concerning them. But have you ever stopped to consider just how liberating that idea really is? Let's return to our therapist who is disturbed because they've not cured their patient. The stoic therapy of emotions frees them and us from the idea that this or any other event needs to upset us. How you feel depends on how you think. Therapist one, who thinks it's their duty to cure all patients, will feel terrible every time a patient fails to recover. Therapist two, who understands that none of us is in omnipotent, won't feel ashamed about not curing a particular patient. And instead, they'll feel a more helpful curiosity about the case and a desire to learn from it. Practice point four, which if anything I find the most valuable of all these practice points, is to look at life through the lens of the four cardinal virtues, which are wisdom, courage, self-control, or temperance or moderation as it's sometimes called, and justice, which isn't just about fairness, it's about other qualities like benevolence and kindness. So wisdom enables us to use our ability to reason well, courage to overcome our fears, self-control 
to manage our desires, and justice to live well in communities. Let's return to my supervisee who was upset because the patient hasn't recovered and see how all these stoic ideas reinforce each other. Understanding the dichotomy of control, they understand that they cannot control this particular outcome. Using the therapy of emotions, they challenge their preconception that they have the capacity and responsibility to cure all patients. Now let's see what happens when they look at this through the lens of the four virtues. The supervisee will need the courage to discuss this particularly difficult case in supervision in the first place. They need wisdom to understand what was the cause of this outcome. Was it just bad luck or was it something to do with their own skills and practice? If it was just bad luck, they they need self-control to manage unhelpful rumination and worry. But if they did err, they need justice to consider what they need to do now in the interest of this and other potential future patients. I hope that I hope that this discussion helps lay to rest the myth that true stoicism has anything at all to do with being passive or oppressive or oppressing emotions, which was practice point one. The true stoic has the serenity to accept what they cannot change, the courage to change what they can, and the wisdom to tell the difference. To find out more about Stoicism, I invite you to read our chapter. You might also be interested in taking part in International Stoic Week for free. The next one is in October, and you can find out more about that at www.modernstoicism.com. And my new book, 365 Ways to Be More Stoic, is published by John Murray in November. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Barrett Michalek. Uh, I am one of the authors uh, for Chapter 24, The Ambiguities of Humility, a conceptual and historical exploration in the context of health professions education. Uh, and we were super psyched to be able to contribute this chapter uh, to the work. Um, it is a fantastic chapter that explores the dynamic nature of humility, uh, by first kind of outlining the conceptual paradox, uh, because on the one hand, humility uh, is this great thing, this you know really socially desirable attribute that's related to other socially desirable attributes like empathy and gratitude and compassion and, and others. But on the other hand, uh, humility has been related to self-abasement, low self-confidence uh, and servitude. So where does all that come from? Well, uh, the author team of myself, uh, Fred Hafferty, Nicole Piamonte, and John Tilbert uh, kind of take us on and take all the readers on this uh, most excellent journey through time, right? Um, and we go ahead and we untangle these paradoxes uh, by exploring class how humility was framed in classic Greek literature, uh, focusing you know on Socrates, Plato, uh, and Greek lore and fable, as well as Aristotle's work. Uh, we then go through classic Christian philosophy, uh, looking at St. Augustine's perspective, St. Benedict and Thomas Aquinas' perspectives on humility. Uh, we then jump into the Enlightenment, and we focus on Hobbes, Hume, Kant, and Nietzsche. 
And we explore their perceptions of humility and really showing all the twists and turns that the concept takes throughout time that really exposes those ambiguities and paradoxes. Uh, we then kind of base it again back in contemporary philosophy, kind of showing where the literature is, and then shift directly into how the literature and research within um, healthcare delivery and health professions education has been discussing the notions of humility. And we also then kind of highlight the areas for future research. Uh, one of our main perspectives there is really to uh, understand the other conceptual cousins as well that have been brought out. So uh, intellectual humility, cultural humility, how they relate, what they've been discussing, and then where are the areas in which we need to go to better understand uh, the kind of the theoretical conceptual understanding of humility as it relates to health professions education, as well as where we can go to do some more empirical uh, work in that area as well. And that's where our team is now. We actually have utilized this chapter as an excellent jumping off point for a number of other pieces that we're working on now and, and for other research that's, that's forthcoming. So we really hope you enjoy it. Uh, we had a great time writing it. Uh, so we look forward to your thoughts. Thank you. This was the last presentation. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope to see you at the conference. Thank you for listening.